You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 37 is where we're going to be. In Genesis 37, um, in our text this morning, in our series on the book of Genesis... And I'm excited about this text today because this officially begins the Joseph narrative in the Bible. And uh, the Genesis account uh, of Joseph is, not, is one of, if not the longest, continuous narrative in all of Scripture. Uh, you've got Genesis, Genesis 37 all the way basically through the end of, of, of Genesis, through chapter 50. You've got this, this story of this young man. Starts out as a young man. But I, and I'm not sure what's amazing is I'm not sure if there is, uh, if there's anyone in the Bible who went through a longer period of suffering and yet maintained a stronger level of faith. I mean, this is literally years and years, this young man going through this, this incredible difficulty and yet he, his character remained impeccable. Uh, his motives remained pure. And yet his life was incredibly hard. So how somebody with such a difficult life can continue to serve God faithfully and be what he's supposed to be. Honestly, it's a testament and a miracle of God's grace. So I'd like to look at both kind of an overview of his life, but also shine a spotlight here in Genesis chapter 37. If you're there, if you found it, if you wouldn't mind standing out of honor and respect of God's word... Genesis 37, we'll begin reading in verse 1 and read the first 11 verses of the chapter. Genesis chapter 37, in verse 1, it says, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And that's interesting. I just want to point out that we skipped chapter 36 in all this. Genesis 36 is really just a recounting of Esau and what happened with Esau's descendants. And if you read Genesis 36, you get the idea that Esau was incredibly rich. He was incredibly blessed. His legacy was large. His land was large. And I I just want to point out the fact that even though God rejected Esau from receiving the birthright, Esau still received a blessing and God followed through on his word. And even when we don't deserve it, God blesses us. And Esau has this incredible legacy... But in chapter 1 of 37, in verse 1, Jacob still is dwelling in the land like a stranger. That's interesting to me because Jacob is the one who's supposed to receive the promise. And yet he's still as a stranger in the land. And we'll see why a little bit more later and in a couple of weeks. But verse 2 it says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren... And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. They, and could not speak peaceably unto him. 
And Joseph, as, it, as if it wasn't bad enough, and Joseph dreamed a dream. And he told it his brethren. And they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. They were bowing down. And if you're the little brother, not the kind of dream you tell your big brothers. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou, shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream. And you're thinking, okay, Joseph, don't do it this time. Don't do it this time. And told it his brethren. And said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. He was rebuked by his father, but his father took note. And one of the themes that shows up in Genesis is the dysfunction of God's chosen family. I mean, it seems like every episode, every chapter, this is God's family, the family that God would bless the earth through and fulfill his kingdom plans with, and they can't even get along. And yet through it all, out of this kind of pot stirring, this pot of dysfunction, out of this pot rises this young man who makes a decision to do what's right even if nobody else does. And I want to focus then this morning on a thought that proves itself in Joseph's life and it's proven itself in your lives many times, I believe, as well. It's this, the isolation of submission. You see, when you choose to submit yourself to God's plans for your life, be ready to live on an island. Be ready to be in the minority. Because submitting to God is not popular. Submitting to God is not the norm. And someday, though, what we have to hold on to is the hope that God will reward his disciple who is willing to submit to God's plans. We know that's true, but in the moment when it's hard, that's when you decide, am I going to continue to submit to God's plan and feel isolated? Or am I going to give in to the pressure and just do what everybody else is doing just so I can fit in? Well, I hope that you will, by the end of the service, realize the importance of sticking it out. Because the end that God provides for the disciple that's submitted to his plans is better than the fitting end that happens along the way. The isolation of submission. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word. I thank you for this truth. Help me to convey it. I pray that it would be your Holy Spirit doing the work and not me or anyone else depending on ourselves to get this across. God, we need your spirit to illuminate your word and speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I remember one time many years ago, of course, I spent years as a youth pastor and, and had a lot of years with young people. And, 
And I love to spend time with young people mostly because sometimes it's fun to sit back and watch the decisions they make that are just not very smart. I remember one time we went to this youth rally and, and there's a game and I don't want to give it away because maybe we'll play it here someday but now you'll know the secret there's a game and, it's, and, it, and they, they, they get people up there and they sit them at a table and they set a caramel apple right in front of them. And the, the idea is that you get your caramel apple and there are four or five other guys that get their caramel apple and the first one to eat their caramel apple wins the game. Easy, you get a prize, you get to go sit down, you get a caramel apple out of it, not a bad idea. Well, what, what they didn't tell us, what I knew, but what this teenage guy from our church didn't know, his name was Carl, his actual real name was Carl, and uh, his name is Carl, sorry, that's an inside joke, talk about it later. Um, he, he, they set him down in front of what looks like a caramel apple, but what they didn't tell him is that they had put an onion underneath all that caramel. So you got four or five guys, and Carl's pretty confident in his ability to eat caramel apples quickly. He looks very proud of himself, very confident, very smug in his caramel apple eating abilities. And he happened, though, to get the onion. So they say, on your mark, get set, go. Carl picks up the, uh, the caramel onion at this point, and he starts to eat. And after the first bite, you can tell. Okay, he knows now what's going on. But see, rather than do what the average intelligent person would do and just set it aside and forget about it Carl said I'm in it to win it <laughs> and Carl proceeded to eat the entire onion and I believe that he won the the game and if not he won because he deserved to win and I remember I'll never forget when Carl came back down from the platform um, everyone is excited until he got about 12 feet from them. <laughs> and as he got closer to people, uh, then you see people literally just kind of falling away because of the smell of Carl. <laughs> he came and he sat in our group and we were packed in tight. As soon as he sat down, it's like sticking your hand in a fish tank and all the fish spread to the sides of the tank. Everyone just jumped to the, away from Carl. And I remember, I very specifically remember riding home on the bus that night and I was driving and looking and back in the very back seat all by himself, nobody was sitting anywhere near, was Carl smelling like an onion that whole trip home. If you know Carl, you don't feel sorry for Carl. <laughs> See, here's the thing. Sometimes we make decisions in life that isolate us. <laughs> We make decisions that are going to set us apart. And in Carl's case, he ate an onion. So that's a silly thing. And I don't, I'm not saying today that Joseph ate an onion. But what Joseph decided to do isolated him from everybody around him. It was like Joseph had done something that nobody else was doing. And he was doing it by himself. And it left him isolated. It left him on an island. We've been studying the life of Jacob since October. It's a long time to look at one guy, and, and as though we're, but we're starting to then transition to J Joseph's life, but that's how the book of Genesis works. Remember, it, it's about generations. You read it, you see the word generations, and that word generations is basically saying, this is what became of the descendants of so-and-so, 
and you've got the generations of Adam, you've got the generations of Noah, the generations of Abraham and Isaac, and we've been in the generations of Jacob, and we're actually, in, in verse 2, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. We're still in the generations of Jacob, but the spotlight is going off of Jacob, and it's now transitioning to putting Joseph right on center stage. Joseph's life deserves to be spotlighted. His life is fascinating. And so just, I've got to give some background because he's that kind of a character. There are very few people in the Bible that are presented as righteously as Joseph was. We know that Joseph was a sinner, but we're not told about his sin. We're not told about the things that he did wrong. From time to time as a young man, he, he, he may have not always had the best filter or even in telling his dreams to his brothers. Maybe he didn't do what many of us would do in that situation. But I don't know that what he was doing was wrong. I, I believe that he, he had a strong sense of doing that which was right, whether or not anybody else was doing that which was right. His life is marked by dreams. He had these three sets of dreams that are symbolic about his future and about the future of the world later on. He had four sets of, of relationships. Uh, you see these episodes in his life. It starts with him and his family, and then you've got him and, um, him and Potiphar's wife. You've got him and those prisoners, and then you've got him and the Pharaoh. And these, there are episodes where one, there's two times where he finds himself in a pit and in a prison, and both of those times, uh, somebody uses clothing as proof, as a false accusation. His, his brothers say that he's dead. Here's his coat. Uh, Potiphar's wife said, he tried to force himself on me. Here's his cloak. And both of those times, he finds himself in a pit and then in the prison because of false accusations. You've got the visits of his brothers there to him in Egypt when God finally raises him to be second in command. You've got the moving of his family to Egypt. And yet among all of this, the trials, the difficulties, even the exaltation, among all of it, Joseph stands tall. He's righteous and he's wise and he's patient and he's godly. He is a picture of Jesus Christ at every turn and I love it. I love his story. As you read it, though, you realize it's different than the other patriarchs. Abraham was a man of great faith, but he made mistakes along the way that gave him some grief. Isaac was a man who really not very much stood out about Isaac, but he was also uh, far from perfect in his mistakes. You've got Jacob, who was constantly getting himself in trouble. In one chapter, you think Jacob's the hero. The next time, you think he's a rascal. Good Bible word, rascal. And here you've got Joseph, this one that stands out in that his trouble came not from his own decisions, but because of what other people did to him. And while his story feels so different, there's so much that remains the same. So many themes that, and we're not going to look into all of them, but so many themes that happened to Joseph, that happened to Jacob, and happened to his other family. And there's just so many similarities. But what stands out to me is not just Joseph's character, but in all of it, the, the providence of God. The provision of of God and and even in this chapter God's not mentioned but you see the effects of God's working in Joseph's life you see the impact and you see the results and the evidence of his guidance even if we don't understand God's methods we'll look at this more next time but based on a prophecy in Genesis 15 
as we get to Genesis 37, God's plan for Israel is to remove them out of the land of Canaan for a time and take them into Egypt to be uh, uh, submissive or in servitude to Egypt. And you say, well, that sounds strange. Well, over in Genesis 15, God uh, told Abraham about the, the iniquity of the Ammonites. And, and he's going to give the Ammonites this certain amount of time uh, to repent before they're judged. But after that time is done, God is, God is going to then bring back Israel into the land. And so God is going to take care of the iniquity in the land before he brings back uh, the Israelites to finally conquer it and go into the land. We don't know exactly why God did it that way, but we know that's part of his plan. And what's interesting is that in Genesis 37, this is the beginning part, the beginning seeds of God getting this family ready to move into Egypt. And you might think that God might would just come along and say, go to Egypt. But he doesn't. He actually uses this dysfunctional background in this family to put Joseph in a position of great honor in Egypt so that his plans can really be fulfilled. See, here, this is interesting, is that you may come from a dysfunctional background. You yourself may feel dysfunctional. You say, I'm shy, I, I don't have a lot of confidence. If you only knew my family, I just want to tell you this today. Joseph came from a dysfunctional situation, and yet God used his background to put him exactly in the place where he was needed to be to preserve the seed of Israel. Don't sell yourself short. God can use your background as a way to propel you into the places that he wants you to be. And I'm thankful for that reminder. This first scene in Joseph's life is him and his family. And this is not a, fa a pleasant family snapshot. Have you ever, I mean, back in the old days, I don't know, uh, the kids wouldn't really understand this. But back in the old days, you took a picture. You didn't know what it was going to look like for a while. I remember taking family pictures with our kids when they were little and it's like, I think that one turned out okay. And then you go to Walmart and, or to, to the pharmacy and they develop the film. We'll talk about this later. I'll explain it. They, they develop the film and the picture comes back and this kid's looking that way. And this kid over here is crying. And mom's upset and dad is, you know, on his phone or whatever dad's doing. You know, that's a dysfunctional family snapshot. You know, that's what's happening here in Genesis 37. This, isn't, this is not your typical, pleasant, enjoyable family picture. This is a picture of a family that is in disarray. And here we have in Genesis 37, when we come to it, Joseph is already an isolated teenager. Why? Well, he was isolated from his brothers because of his character. In verse 2, it says that, uh, that he was out working with his brothers in the field and feeding the flock. And the end of verse 2, it says, And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. So Joseph and his older brothers, remember, he's the youngest besides Benjamin. Joseph is out in the field. I'm assuming Benjamin's not old enough to be out in the field with them. But he's out in the field. And I don't know what his brothers are doing, but the Bible says it's an evil report. Meaning that what his brothers are doing is not an at right with God. It's not something God is pleased with. And you know what's interesting is some commentators go so far to say that Joseph is a spoiled brat. That he's a talebearer and he's a braggart. And you know what? I don't really like that. I don't buy that. See, I know there's a code. I know that snitches get stitches. 
But what becomes clear to me is that Joseph is committed first to his father. See, Joseph is faithfully serving Jacob. That's his priority. And if his brothers aren't doing right, that's not Joseph's fault. And I'm thankful, listen, I'm thankful that Joseph was so committed to his father and to the idea of right and wrong that he didn't hide the kinds of things that weren't weren't pleasing to God. Remember the iniquity of the Ammonites. I talked about that a minute ago. It's affecting Jacob's son. I believe that's a big part of the reason that God wanted to get them out of Canaan and bring them back when the time was right. We saw it with Reuben last time. The iniquity of the Ammonites is affecting this family. In a couple of chapters, we'll see that the iniquity of the Ammonites is is affecting Judah and his actions. Here's the thing. Don't be afraid to speak the truth if destruction is imminent. I mean, last night, uh, last night, Audrey was pulling out in her car and, and she was going to head somewhere and somebody, uh, a couple of the kids had left the ripstick. I don't know if you know what a ripstick is. It's like an alien skateboard, okay? The kids had left the ripstick and a skateboard uh, or a scooter right in front of her car and she got in her car and put it into drive and started to drive and she was going to run right over those things and those are valuable to a family, Okay? So Olivia and myself and Caitlin and anybody who was watching were like, wait, 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 stop, stop. And within inches, I mean, it was like, it was, it was amazing. Within inches of that stuff, we stopped her. We preserved the life of that ripstick and that scooter. <laughs> but you know, in that moment, we didn't want her to, to drive over those things. We were, we were trying to preserve those things. And there will be times in life that there's something going on in, somebody's, in somebody else's life. And you think, well, it's not really my place to say. But listen, if there's danger and there's destruction ahead and you don't say anything, what's better? We may have people in this church right now, and I'm not saying I know of situations. We may have people in this church right now, and you know of something else going on in somebody's life, and you're a little bit afraid to say something. And I'm telling you, the regret that you'll have later of not saying something is far worse than whatever happens in the meantime if you just go ahead and speak up. And I'm not saying tattle to gossip. I'm saying you love somebody enough that you're willing to say something. Be thankful. Listen, I know sometimes we look down on a person who turns us in. But if sin is being committed, be thankful for God's mercy that you got caught well before it was too late. Joseph is more committed to doing right than pleasing people. And that's not an easy thing, especially for young people. I know plenty of young people in this situation who would have chosen not to say anything and they would have compromised because they want to please their, their, the people around them. They want to please their older brothers. I mean, that would be natural. But I would just want to say this to you if you're a young person in here and your siblings aren't doing right, you have a responsibility before God and your parents to make it known if you love them. If, if destruction is imminent, say something. What we see in Joseph's life time and time again is the code that matters most to him is not, hey, you know, you don't tell, you don't squeal, you don't snitch. No, the code that matters the most to him is not what do people think, but what does God think? He tells Potiphar's wife in in a little bit, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
And if a young man is that committed to doing right in, in, in the face of wrong, any of us can be that committed to doing right. Some of you, though, have family that don't agree with the things you do. You've got, you've got married, you have kids of your own, and God's changed your life. And if that's happened, there will be plenty of times that even your own family values will be in conflict with theirs. You have to decide, am I living for God or am I living to please other people? I'm not saying you act condescending. I'm not saying that you act full of pride. I'm not saying that you don't act like a Christian because you always act like a Christian. You ought to. But there will be times where you have to decide, am I more committed to doing right or pleasing the people around me? You know, there, and we live in a culture, and probably over here, I haven't seen it yet today, but I wouldn't be surprised if over here the ball fields are full. Everyone does stuff on Sundays, and if you're trying to lead your family to prioritize God's house, and they're still engaging in things that you used to do, and now you don't, and now you're trying to be a disciple and lead your family, there may be times that you're going to have to say no, and that's not easy. But you have to decide, am I committed to pleasing God, or am I committed to pleasing other people? Being more committed to doing right than pleasing people will not make you popular. But you have to decide who matters the most is it the, in your decisions. Is it God or my family? Is it God or my friends? Is it God or my coworkers? Is it God or pleasing people? You're going to have to trust that doing right brings a better end than pleasing people. And it plays out in Joseph's life for sure. He was more committed to his father than his brethren. His father was his authority. His father represented God in his life. And we need some young people that are more committed to their authority than they are to their peers. And as a teenager, listen, if you will be more committed to your authorities, even to the point of doing right when nobody else is doing right, you will find yourself in a position, just like Joseph did, to be blessed by God more than anybody else around you. Why do you think Joseph got more opportunities? Why do you think Joseph was lifted up and put in the position that he was in? Uh, because he was willing to stand and put God first, even in the face of those that weren't doing right. Now listen, I'm going to say it again. This is not a path to popularity, but it is a path to pleasing God. And you have to decide, teenager, which is more important to you. Do I want to be popular or do I want to please God? Uh, young couples with children, you have to decide, am I going to do what helps me fit in or, if I, or am I going to do what helps me to please God? You have to decide that as an old couple. You have to decide that as a single person, as a college-age person, as somebody living on your own. We all decide who we're trying to please and we ought to let that dictate our decisions. Just know this, if you live to please God and you, and you do right, it's going to isolate you. Joseph became an outlier, but we need more of God's people willing to be outliers, willing to stand alone, and, and if need be, a commitment to do right and please your father means you won't be popular, but you will please God, and I'm asking you which one matters the most. Joseph was an outlier. He was isolated because of his character and his desire to please his father, but he was also isolated because he was his father's favorite. Look at verse 1 again. Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. 
Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. See, Joseph's faithfulness to his father and to doing right, it contributed to him being the favorite. And honestly, it's easy to love. If there's a 17-year-old boy with a great spirit who puts his being faithful to his dad first and does what's right in any situation, it, it would be hard not to love that kid. Um, on the other hand, it's easy to not like the teacher's pet. The one that's always sitting in front, the one that's always raising their hand and getting all the special treatment. There's no resentment in my life. You know, Joseph was daddy's favorite. A 17-year-old doing right, I mean, it'd be hard not to love. But on top of that, Joseph is the son of Jacob's old age. Meaning that for a long time, he was the youngest son of Rachel, who happened to be Jacob's favorite wife. For a long time, until Benjamin was born, he was the baby. And we all know how the youngest child in the family gets treated. You know, the problem with playing favorites, though, is you'd think that Jacob would know better. Because Jacob had seen what it was like to have a family that played favorites. Isaac loved Esau, uh, Rachel or Rebecca loved Jacob. And I'm telling you, the turmoil and the dysfunction that Jacob saw in his own family should have translated when he was treating his, his own children uh, the way he was treating them because history repeats itself. Verse 3 tells us Jacob loved Joseph so much that he made him a coat of many colors. Notice, he didn't just give him a coat. He made him a coat. And this likely describes a, a cloak or long robe that went down to the wrists and went down to the ankles. And the only other time we see this is in the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, this word. It basically means royal clothing. It would have absolutely set Joseph apart from his brother's. I mean, this is their little brother who they already view as a snitch. He's already daddy's favorite. Now he has a coat. So it's no surprise in verse 4 that the, the Bible says, When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. You're not surprised. And you might say, well, they're brothers. Of course they don't like each other. And if you grew up with brothers, you know what that's like. Sometimes it is hard to speak peaceably to each other. If you grew up with brothers, then you know this sounds kind of normal. Yesterday I was talking to Brother Mike about this passage, Mike Steed. And I said, yeah, can you imagine having brothers that throw you in a pit? And he said, yeah. <laughs> he said, my brother threw me through his screen door one time. And then we frantically tried to fix it before dad got home. See, it's amazing. That's how guys are. One minute they're fighting, they're the worst enemies in the world. And the next minute they are working in unity for the greater good. If you have brothers, you know what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, brothers can beat you up and they can punch you and they can torture you and they can lock you out and they can make your life miserable. But when it comes down to it, we're on the same team and if we need to work together so that dad doesn't find out what just happened, we're, let's do this. On the other hand, I've got four girls and if one doesn't talk to the other one the way the other one likes, they don't talk for three months. <laughs> Boys may be more violent, but I find it to be a, a more Christian environment. So... <laughs> So, just kidding. Joseph's brothers hated him, though. They couldn't speak peaceably. And they're, listen, and I, I'm trying to make, be serious here about this. It, it, I'm, without joking about it, there are some in this room, you've allowed a hatred to take over your life. And there's somebody in your life you can't speak peaceably to, you can't even think peaceably about. And bitterness will destroy your relationships with your family. It will destroy your relationships with your friends. But even bigger than that, it will destroy you. It will eat you away from the inside out. And the hatred that Joseph's brothers had toward him led them down a road they never thought they would be, they would be going. So here's Joseph. He's isolated because of his desire to please his dad. He's isolated because he's got good character. He's isolated because he's his dad's favorite. But he's also isolated because of he's got some dreams. His, his spirit toward God's revelation isolated him. In verses 5 through 8, it says, Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed, and we've already read it. They're, they're binding sheaves in the field, and his sheaf of wheat or grain um, is, stands in the middle. And all of his brothers' sheaves of wheat or grain surround him, and the, those sheaves bow down to Joseph's sheaves. And he, and he tells this dream to them. And these dreams are symbolic, which is different than what, how the Lord has typically used dreams in the Old Testament. To this point, in, in a dream, God would, to the other patriarchs, he normally came and he spoke to them. He talked to them. He had dialogue. Well, now there are these symbols. And these symbols represent something in Joseph's life in the future that he will one day have prominence over his family. And when he tells them about these dreams and explains it, they say, you're our little brother. You're not going to reign over us. The Bible says they hated him yet the more. And if there's a weakness in Joseph, it's his inability to keep information to himself when he may, maybe he should have. I'm not saying it's a sin. I'm not saying that he did wrong. What I, I, and I'm not even faulting him for doing it. Because if you think about this, Joseph was excited because these are God's revelations to Joseph. God's revealing himself to Joseph. And maybe he shouldn't have said anything. But to me, the problem is certainly not his. The problem is his brother's. Because he has another dream. And, and in that dream, you know, the, the sun and the moon. And he uses the sun and the moon to depict his rise to dominion. And their response, again, is typical. In verse 11, it says his brothers envied him. Of course they did. Here, here's little brother, annoying little brother, who always tells on us, and goes home and tells dad, and now he's telling us he's going to rise up, he's going to be our boss. They envied him, they hated him, and Jacob himself even rebuked him for the dream here. But if anyone should have understood the dream, it's Jacob. You see, he's watching, again, the same themes that crop up in his life. He's watching it show up in Joseph's life. Because what Joseph is saying is that God has revealed to me 
that one day the younger will, ri the younger will rise up and the older ones will serve the younger. And though Jacob rebuked him at first, Jacob, the Bible says that Jacob observed the saying. Which means he started to get it. He pondered it. He realized that there was some truth behind this. Because in his mind, he's thinking, okay, the younger is going to rise up and the older will serve the younger. Um, how does that sound familiar? Because in his own life, God had revealed to his mother before those boys were even born. The two will come out, they'll both be great nations, but the older will rule, or the younger will rule over the older. And as Jacob looks at his son Joseph, and he's, he knows that this revelation is from God, and he's thinking, boy, I hope this boy knows what lies ahead. Because it's not easy to accept God's plan for your life. It's not easy to say this is God's revelation to me and I accept it. Because if anybody knows what accepting God's plan for your life feels like, it's Jacob. Now Jacob did wrong and Jacob messed up. But in the end, Jacob was simply trying to pursue God's plan for his life in receiving the birthright and the blessing. I'm not saying he went about it the right way, but I do believe in the end he thought, oh, well, God's going to bless me and God's going to give me the birthright. So I'm going to just make sure that I get it. But see, that was Jacob embracing God's revelation for himself. And I believe that this is Joseph doing the exact same thing. And this is where I, I think that we begin to see the big idea is that, uh, that Jacob knew that God was behind it. And Jacob knew that these dreams meant something. They were clearly God's messages. And we have the advantage of knowing that in the end Joseph did rise up. Joseph in the end was ruler and his brothers came and worshipped him. So we know that these dreams were from God. These dreams were the future being told. It was God's revelation. We know it came to pass. And this is how God spoke to people in Genesis. He would come to them in dreams. Well, why would he do it that way? Well, because they didn't have one of these yet. So God's revelation would come individually to people in, in, in a specific message and, in, and usually very often in the form of a dream because he hadn't put his words on paper yet. But listen, we have the Bible. See, we have God's revelation of himself and, and I believe that God's word is preserved in this good old King James version of the Bible. I'm thankful that we have it. I'm thankful that we can read it and we can trust it. And we know these words are from God and they're preserved by God. I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful that we have it. It wasn't always that way. It used to be that God would come and speak to people in dreams. And, and you might say, well, that would seem so much more significant if God would just come and speak to me. But there's a, there's a passage in, in the book of 2 Peter where Peter says, I've had experiences with God himself. And I also have seen God's word. And I'm telling you, based on experience or God's word, we have a more sure word of prophecy. So what Peter himself said, having experienced both, was that this is more reliable, this is, that you can trust this, you can believe this. God's word is a more sure word of prophecy. You can trust it. It's reliable. Sometimes in our experiences, we don't see things the way we, we thought we did. 
We may forget the way we saw something. But I'm telling you, God's word doesn't change. And we know this, we can, be, we can rely on this, we know that it has the power that it needs. God's word is preserved right here. His, this is his revelation of himself to mankind. And although that's exciting to some of us in here, and we've got some in here saying amen, yeah, we've got God's word. I'm excited, I love God's word, I love to hear it preached, I love to read it, it's a blessing. But on the other hand, things haven't changed much. Meaning, if you embrace Listen, and this is where we start to make the transition to where it applies to you. If we embrace, if you embrace God's revelation of himself in your life like Joseph, there will be lots of people that aren't excited about it. Just like Joseph's brothers. You see, our world doesn't like to hear God's messages. Our culture doesn't like God's word. Our society doesn't want to submit to God's desires. They live how they want to. They do their own thing. And when we proclaim this message, people don't like it. There's a condescending spirit toward those that are trying to live based on God's revelation. Just like Joseph's brothers, they look down on him and say, God's revelation, those dreams, come on. They hated him. They were envious of him. Uh, in our culture, those that don't follow God and those that don't have a desire for God, they flat out reject God's revelation of himself. They think that living according to their own standard will produce a better ending than submitting to God. And here's what happens. Those of us trying to live according to God's revelation of himself, we feel isolated. I mean, think about it. Fewer and fewer people every day are following God's word. And see, it used to be in our culture that if you were standing right here, the culture was kind of right over here, and you were kind of going the same direction. Well, as we continue to stand right here, the culture gets further and further and further away from God's revelation. And by the way... You know what we shouldn't do as Christians? We shouldn't be taking our cues from the culture. Because if we're standing where we believe is God's word, on God's revelation, we're embracing the revelation, then we stand right here. But what I'm telling you is, it used to be that almost hand in hand, culture was close enough to where people stood on God's word that, that, that honestly, Sundays were sacred. And values were essentially the same. But I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a large and widening gap between those that believe God's word and those that don't. And it gets wider and wider and wider as the days go by. And plenty of people that used to be standing here are following right along with it. And I'm telling you, those of us that were standing right where we believe is God's word would have us to stand. We have fewer and fewer, fewer people standing around us. We are isolated. We stand by ourselves. And it is not getting any better. It's not like things are going to come around and all those people over there are going to be like, okay, it's time to get back. And they're just going to accidentally drift back to where we are. It's not how it works. 
So what you have to decide to do in your life is say, do I believe that standing here by myself is my best option? Because the pressure is heavy to conform. And honestly, you feel lonely. You're isolated, just like Joseph, isolated. And you're kind of just drifting along by yourself while everyone else is doing essentially similar things. And you're kind of just right here where you are. And you're standing where you've always stood. And you're looking over here. And there's people all the way over here. And even on this side, there's people all the way over here. And you're just where you are. And there's nobody to reach out and touch. And you feel like you're the only one. You feel like you're all but forgotten. It happened in Joseph's life. In this first scene, he was hated. In this first scene, all he got was hate. In the second scene, he gets betrayed. In the following scene, he gets, he gets lied about. In the, le- in the next scene, he gets forgotten about. But in the final scene, what we have to remember is in the final scene, God's revelation does come true. And Joseph stands in a place, in a position to save his family and preserve Israel because he gladly embraced God's revelation. That was his ending. And friend, I want to tell you this morning, if you will live according to God's revelation, if you will live according to God's precious word, your ending will be good. God's endings are always the best. Always. Here's the problem. Along the way, you're going to find yourself feeling lonely. Along the way, you're going to find yourself feeling isolated. If we've got any young people and you've ever spent time in a public school and, then you, and you've tried to stand for God, I remember you feel all alone. As you get older, uh, you know, as maybe you have children and you're, you're a couple, you've got a family and you're raising your children with rules that you're trying to line up with God's word, but you're seeing their friends go that way and this family is going off that way. And it seems like it's just you and your kids still walking this line right here. You're like, man, is this worth it? We feel lonely, we feel isolated, like we're the only ones doing this. You're going to have to decide if you are going to live to be accepted by the people in the present or if you're going to live to be accepted by God in the end. When you're saying no to those co-workers that are inviting you out for a drink again, in that moment you will have to decide if you're going to live to please people in the present or if you're going to live to please, please God in the end. And when you're deciding which house to buy and, and all of your friends are getting nicer, bigger houses and you've got two options and one really is nice and it checks all the boxes and it's a lot more expensive and then this one over here doesn't check as many boxes and it doesn't and it's not quite as nice and it's really what we can afford and honestly, if we do this, I don't know that we can keep giving to the church like we've been giving and, but if we do this, I, I mean, that still makes that possible. You're gonna have to decide. Listen, everybody else is going over here. You're gonna have to decide, do I wanna live to please people or please my myself in the moment or am I going to live to please God in the end you're going to feel isolated 
And there are decisions after decisions that get made in our lives where we are coming up against this, com this complex, complicated decision where we're deciding, am I going to live to please people in the moment or am I going to live to please God in the end? And when that temptation comes and you're standing here and the temptation comes again for you to do something um, you know, that you know God wouldn't be pleased with, you have to decide, am I going to live to please my flesh in the moment? Or am I going to live to please God in the end? It gets hard. You feel all alone. You feel like nobody else is doing what you're doing. You feel isolated. And you're like, surely, I mean, surely it, it, you know, it, it would be okay if I just maybe make this decision right now. It'll be okay. No, listen, it's easier. It is. It's easier to live life on your terms. It's less lonely. It's less isolating. You're going to have more friends. You're going to be more accepted and things will seem smoother. But listen, you will be choosing to live for what's easier now while forfeiting what's best later. Or you can choose to receive God's word and live for what's best later. Even if it means you have to deal with something hard right now. I heard somebody say one time, there are two pains in life. The pain of discipline and the pain of regret. And most people, most people deal with the pain of regret. Because they're not willing to submit to the pain of discipline. So many people live for the moment and they regret it in the end. And I'm telling you this, your response to God's word, how he tells us to live in marriage and finances and purity in our families, that determines when you have your pain. Because saying yes to God right now may be painful, but it's better in the end. And saying no to God right now may be easier, but the pain of regret will be heavy in the end. And I think we ought to apply this to salvation. Because there are some people in this room, and listen, I, I know we're getting down to the end of it, but I want you to lock in here because this is the most important application. There are people in this room, and I'm telling you right now, there are people in this room, and if you died before the service ends, you'd be separated forever from God in a place called hell. That's what the Bible says. And the reason is because you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I don't know all the reasons that you've never placed your faith in Christ. But one thing that I've encountered lately is that people don't want to hear about their sin. See, you confront, somebody confronts you about your sin, not in a harsh way, but in a loving way. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. The whole world is guilty of sin, including yourself. But I know people that refuse to place their faith in Jesus Christ because they don't like to be told that they're a sinner. So you're saying then that you would rather deal right now with, with the easy way out because you don't want to be confronted about your sin knowing that someday you're going to stand before God and you will answer to him for your sin. And if you don't receive Christ while you're here and you wait till then to make that decision, it will be too late.
What I'm asking you to consider today is whatever God is asking you to do through his word, submit to the pain of discipline right now and you can avoid the pain of regret later. What I'm asking you, what God is asking you to do is to say my word always has the best endings. And if you will just simply set aside what you desire and submit to my word, it may feel isolating, but here's a great truth. Bible says, God says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. All along the way, because Joseph submitted himself to God's revelation, God stood by his side. And he'll stand by your side too. If you will submit to his revelation for your life. And you'll say, whatever God you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. You just have to choose which ending you think is better, yours or his. Well, I'm telling you, someday when you stand before him and you answer to him, you might as well submit to his revelation because he's the one you're going to answer to. My wife, my wife is funny. By that I mean, she has these little quirks that, you know, I love about her. One of the things that my wife does that makes me laugh is she refuses to watch a movie if she thinks it's going to have a bad ending. See, to me, I don't get caught up in that stuff. But she will get caught up. She's like, okay, but how does this end? If it's a bad ending, I don't want to watch it. She's very committed to that principle, by the way. And you know, I'm not trying to bring in movies to this invitation here. I'm trying to prove a point to you. I wish there were some Christians as committed to that principle as a Christian as she is to that principle in her life. Saying, you know what? If it's a bad ending, I want no part of it. If it's a bad ending, I don't want anything to do with it. So if me submitting to my flesh in the moment could produce a bad ending, I'm out. If me submitting to the friends at work to do wrong, if that could have a bad ending, I'm out right now. If me submitting to my flesh to do something else besides going to God's house on Sunday, if that could produce a bad ending, no thank you. Whatever it is in life, if if it's going to produce a bad ending, I don't want any part of it. That needs to be our principle. That needs to be our mindset. You see, there's only one good ending, and that's when you submit to God's revelation. Everything else is something bad. So I'm asking you today, would you be as committed to saying, I only want good endings, as you are to everything else? Say, if there's a bad ending involved, I want no part of it. I'm just going to keep submitting to God's revelation for my life. I'm telling you, if you do this book, God will make sure it ends well. It won't always be easy. You're going to feel isolated. You may even lose some friends. But if you deal with the pain of discipline right now, you won't have the pain of regret later. Let's stand. Every head bowed. Thank you for your attention today. If God's speaking to your heart about something today, we have what we call an invitation time. 
And this is an opportunity for you to respond to God's word. And I know this is something many of you may not be familiar with. And, and I don't want to make you uncomfortable today. But I also know that if God's speaking to you, if God's working in your life, and you walk out without doing something about it, the Bible says that you add a layer of deceit on your heart. And there's no reason to do that. If God's working in your life, we have men and women that could meet you right down here up front and could pray with you and counsel you and encourage you and show you from God's word. If you don't know that you're saved, you can be saved today. If you need to get something right, you can get it right today. And I'm just telling you, if you will respond to God's word like we've just talked about, the ending is always good. Would you be willing to respond to however God has spoken to you today? I'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit and ask him to help. Father in heaven, we love you and we need you. God, I pray that you would speak to our lives. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that you would give us the courage this morning to respond how we're supposed to respond. Lord, all of us want to do certain things in life, but I pray that you'd help us to have the filter that says, nope, if it's a bad ending, I don't want it. And the only way to avoid the bad endings is to always, always submit to God's revelation. Help us today, Father, as you've spoken it to us through your word. Help us to submit to it in whatever way you've spoken. God, have your will and way in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.